be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. Today we look into cases that have eluded authorities and may never be put to rest, ranging from serial killers to rapists. Do you have information in defining these demented monsters? Find out in this episode of Unsolved. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Quarter, And this is Criminal as Fuck. What's good, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminal AF. Once again, I am Dave Jari, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Corder. How we doing? Now, I just have to give a shout-out where a shout-out is due. Fucking Australia. We're killing it. Like, Australia is unbelievable. Love you guys. The top city that has downloaded our episodes is Melbourne. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. I, I caught slack for this last time. It's Melbourne. 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 Yeah. Okay. So the top city that has downloaded our episodes is Melbourne. That Catherine Knight episode, man. Yeah, I mean, hey. <laughs> we got to show some love to more. We got to deep dive on Australia a little bit more. I know. You know, that's just, that's just amazing. So, like, I was looking at it the other day, and our top five is Melbourne, Dallas, Texas, Calgary, Alberta, Adelaide, South Australia, and Sydney, New South Wales. Three cities in Australia out of the top five. Wow. That just fucking blows love my mind. Guys. Love you guys. Hey, Australia, shout out. Love you guys. But, you know, as as always, you do realize that this is a true crime podcast. Yeah. So, there will be talk of murder, rape, torture, arson, and pretty much any crime that would haunt you nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be vulgar language. Like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. There will be there will be the use of the word fuck. So we understand that criminal AF is not for everyone, but we just ask that you at least give it a listen. And if it's not for you, hey, thanks for checking it out. But if it is, welcome, welcome to, to the debauchery. debauchery. Let's go to Florida. You want to go to Florida, boy? All right, so we actually have two for you guys today. First off, Fort Myers, Florida. Yeah, Fort Myers. Okay, <laughs> let's go to Fort Myers. Man clad only in underwear arrested for throwing cinder blocks at you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Man clad. Man clad only in underwear, arrested for throwing cinder blocks at deputies from the roof of a Fort Myers restaurant. Oh, mm. oh we're, we're definitely going to include his mugshot in here because this guy. <laughs> All right. Jesus Medina, 24, is facing charges after he was arrested for throwing cinder blocks towards deputies from the roof of La Mexicana restaurant off Ortiz Ave around noon. Mm. It's giving a bad name to Mexican restaurants. Yes. Deputy said the man was on the roof wearing nothing but his underwear while yelling and acting erratically, even causing $10,000 in damage to the restaurant's sign. Oh. 
Now, is it just like, is it like whitey tighties or is it like a banana hammock? I, I don't know. Yeah. We don't have, we don't have pictures. There's a picture of the, the roof sign that is completely mangled and hanging <laughs> off. <laughs> we'll include pictures for you guys. Uh, Debbie said the man was on the roof. For, oh, uh, according to LCSO, officials use less than lethal force to get the man off the roof and place him under arrest. <laughs> they so, tased him. <laughs> but... How, Imagine that know, shit sitting in your skivvies. Right <laughs> just like, <laughs> I wonder if he shit himself. <laughs> oh, and then they had to put him in the car with a shit, yes. shit whitey tighties. Yes. I mean, crackheads do usually wear whitey tighties though, so <laughs> it probably wasn't wasn't black. <laughs> I want to know, like. The fact that they use less than lethal. Because yeah. if I'm a deputy, right, right. people just start chucking cinder blocks off the roof yeah. at you. Like they're, they're probably. But at the, then again, if he was crazy, they're like, "All right, Ortiz, come on down." Yeah, all right, but come okay. On, bud. It's this. This is over. Yeah, this is over. You had your fun. All right. God, I wish there were. I want. I want a uh, dash cam footage of that. I know. Because I want to know how they got him off the roof. I re- no. I want to. I want to like see this guy in his underwear. Like I want to know what kind of he's rocking. <laughs> And then after the, after he got tased, I want to know if he fucking pissed and shit himself. Big old dick root. <laughs> <laughs> oh, as much as being a cop, like, a, a cop sounds you? so fun. Dick root? You don't know what dick root is? D- dick root is the, the V that goes, that connects... Oh, I, I don't know. We can't put that in there. <laughs> I wear boxers, so I, oh, I don't okay, know. Okay, okay, okay. It's the d- d- dick room. It's okay. the, you know, the V thing that that guy's got going on. Uh, yeah, but looking at this guy's mugshot, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it's anything impressive. <laughs> All right, I want to hear yours. Oh, okay. okay. All right, here we go. All right. Florida man has sex with his pit bull as neighbors beg him to stop. (laughs) There's no way. There's no way. (laughs) I got it right here. All right. All right. Bestiality, dude? We were out of that. We didn't have that on the list. You didn't say that in the beginning. (laughs) Fucking Christ. (laughs) There will be bestiality. (laughs) On Wednesday morning, a Florida man apparently decided... What the hell? I'm just going to go ahead and bang my dog in my front yard. So in broad morning daylight, for all to see, the man dropped his trousers and began having sex with his dog. To the shock of his neighbors, Bernard Marcinic, oh, so this is real. 57, began having sex with his pit bull right outside in the front yard of his home, located at 8125 North Mark Street. In Hillsborough County. Oh, that guy deserves to have his social out there. As horrified neighbors begged him to stop. He ignored their calls. <laughs> to stop having sex with his dog in front of the entire neighborhood. Oh, you know, there's, there's so many dog fans out here who are going to be so pissed at this story. <laughs> I'm not laughing. Some people who didn't care much for watching a man fuck his own dog in the front yard decided to flag down a police officer passing by, according to the Tampa Tribune. The cops pulled over and were met by several witnesses who told them that they saw Marcinic diddling his pooch and how they pleaded for him to stop. Police were able to get into Marcinic's home where they interviewed him. Hillsbury County Animal Services were also called to the home and arrived with a search warrant. They executed a search of Marcinic's home where police said they found eight dogs. Oh. 
as well as a gun and some ammunition. Cops seized the weapon during the search. Animal Services also took custody of Marcinix's eight, Marcinix's eight pit bulls. He was immediately arrested Wednesday morning and is now facing charges of aggravated animal cruelty and two counts of being a felon in possession of a firearm. He's also facing misdemeanor count of sexual activity involving animals. <laughs> I like, oh my god, dude. There's nowhere to even start there. I know. Like, him just on the front lawn, like, and he, everybody sees him. They're like, hey, stop! Yeah. Stop! <laughs> he, he, he's just sitting back on his lawn. He's like, mm-hmm. Damn, that people looking good eight, right now. Eight dogs. Mm. And we have our friend Abe here in the background here, and he's moving to Florida. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I, we got some plans in Florida. All right, we're not, <laughs> not all you guys are crazy, but you got to stay where those like over fifty-five communities are, are. You know what I mean? Stay in that area. Don't start venturing to like, you know, Ocala and all those areas. Oh man, yeah. So, man. shit's popping off in Florida. I guess. <laughs> Nobody's safe. Nope. <laughs> Not even pit bulls. <laughs> <laughs> dog was and, like, and, and listen, dog lovers out there who are listening, I'm, I'm so sorry. I wasn't yes. laughing. It's, I mean, we don't condone we don't having get... sex with your dog. <laughs> However, I mean, this dude is just funny. Like, who the fuck does that? Just sitting in his front yard, staring at his dog and being like, you know what? Oh, you got a pretty... Mouth? What, what is it? Snout? <laughs> you sure got a pretty snout. You got a pretty snout. <laughs> like, who the fuck does that? <laughs> anyway, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, we want to try something new, and it's a segment that we'll call Triple Dog Dare. Now, we'll do it live here today, but in the future, we'll add it to our bonus content for criminals who select the Ramirez tier and above. So basically, triple dog dare is reminiscent of our younger days when someone would triple dog dare you to do something. And you couldn't refuse or you would be the biggest bitch on the playground. Oh, so I'd be a bitch if I refused. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So what we'll do is Gary and I have chosen random tasks for each other. And it's something that we absolutely cannot refuse to do. We have to do it. So what does this have to do with true crime? Absolutely fucking nothing. (laughs) Nothing at all. No. Nothing we, at all. We just like messing with each other. Yeah. But, you know, we try to have a little bit of fun, you know, while we're discussing these uh, fucked up trash bags. Yeah. Right. You know? I mean, you got to have some light in the I know. In Otherwise, the darkness. We'd, we'd become depressed. <laughs> and uh, I don't think you guys want that to happen. Without further ado, Garrett, I sent you an email. Can you open that email, please? If I'm eating something or... <laughs> What do you see? Lyrics. Lyrics to a song? Yeah. All right, here's a little premise to what's going to happen here. So, a couple years ago, HBO oh, came out oh, with... Oh, wait, <laughs> wait. Oh. HBO came out with a documentary, uh, or a little mini-series on Chernobyl. And uh, one of our friends, David Mercurio, and I were just sitting around one day, and we were like discussing Chernobyl, and we were like, wouldn't it be funny if there was like a strip club in, in Chernobyl? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So then we... Made a song. It took us like 20 minutes. David, who's a genius at music, made made the, all the music, and we just threw down some random freaking lines. 
and made a song called Chernobyl Strip Club. Oh yeah, this is this. I heard the beat to this because I remember yes. you guys were like messing around with it at, at work. Yep. So, so what Garrett needs to do is he needs to uh, rap along to two verses of Chernobyl Strip Club. <laughs> That's the name of the title. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Let's do it. All right. To make it easier for you, I got some music to play along. Okay. So you just you just rap along with the music. Okay. All right. All right. This little intro. Yeah. Oh. What? Okay, go. Went to the club with two, two friends. Got through the door with just two tens. A girl came up and got between us. She had three tits and a micro penis. <laughs> or for whatever you call it. I took out my ones because I'll be all for it. Strippers everywhere. We're about to ball out. I like that smack with the nuclear fallout. I like freaky and leaky and totally obscene. I get full of toast whenever I'm yelling Wolverines. I got two girls with one eyed three digits. It would be a perfect night if we only had a midget. <laughs> Hold on. All right, ready? Second verse. Here we go. Go. You can call us brave. You can call us noble for going over the strange strip club inter-noble. But I'm too honest. I'm going to play with money back. Because I saw the dancers growing a nut sack. <laughs> she told me not to worry. It was aesthetic. <laughs> with a prosthetic. She told me it was exotic. The nuts, so I ignore it as a ring. <laughs> what? You guys? And, and if oh the funny part God. about this is both of these two individuals, including me, work at a nuclear power plant, too. So. <laughs> what? That was that wasn't that, bad. That, that wasn't was, bad for, was good. for a cold. I yeah, I didn't even hear that. If I, it, you give me two more times, I'm telling you I'm killing you. Yeah, yeah. But, that's pretty good. I like it. Well, <laughs> my... <laughs> I like the song, by the way. You guys, oh, thank you, you guys have a little too much time on your hands. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like this song. We just threw it out together in like you know, fifteen, twenty minutes. You know. All right. So mine is more of a traditional double, triple dog dare. Okay. Actually, you know what I like? I like dare on air. Dare on air. The name of this segment. All right. Yeah, I like that. Mine's a little bit more traditional. Yeah. You. Okay. Are gonna take a full shot of Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> Okay. Have, do you like Worcestershire sauce? Yeah. Oh, okay. Wait, how do you how do you pronounce it? Worcestershire. Do you say it like that, or are you just saying because I'm saying? It? What you say it again? Worcestershire. Worcestershire. Okay. Because yeah. I've heard Worcestershire, 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 Worcestershire. I've heard people say some crazy shit. All right, we have our trusty Worcestershire. <laughs> <laughs> war Worcester. War 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 Worcester. War Crest. War Crestshire. Sauce. Oh. Affidavit. Affidavit. Oh, that looks yummy. That's what you're giving me? You want more? Okay, I was. I thought you were giving me a full shot. Oh, that was a full shot. 100%. But I'll. Oh, that is a lot. <laughs> yeah, it sounded. It sounds easy. Oh, oh! All right, here we go. Oh, I can smell it from here. Through the mouth, down the hatch. Hopefully tonight, I get some snatch. <laughs> oh, 
Don't don't throw up. Don't throw up. <laughs> oh my god, it burns. Oh. oh my god, it burns. Oh, that's not good. No, it's not. It feels like I have the worst fucking heartburn I've ever had in my life. When you get when you have a splash on some food. Oh shit. Don't don't die at me. Don't die at me. I'm proud of you. You took that like a champ. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know if I, I would have probably puked. You good? Take, get yourself some coffee. Actually, coffee and wishes your Worcestershire sauce does not mix. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Oh, my you God. You took like that like an absolute champ. Oh, excuse me. Oh, that burn going down. Oh. Well, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the rap though. You guys, you, you might have something there. <laughs> oh man! All right. So enough of these shenanigans. We'll get into the first chapter of this episode of Unsolved with Ooh. New Bedford Highway Killer. Weld Square, a section of New Bedford, Massachusetts, which in 1989 consisted of rundown buildings, storefronts and three deckers was plagued with a drug epidemic. Not all the people who lived and worked in this area were on the wrong side of the law, but there was an influx of people that sold heroin and cocaine, and the people that used them, right out in the open, in the daylight without a care, police rarely passing through. This area was also a haven for prostitution, and one by one, women were disappearing. There was a serial killer on the loose, you wouldn't know it by walking the area along Purchase Street. The dealers were still dealing, the buyers were still buying, and the prostitutes were still flipping tricks. In May of 1988, Deborah Maderos of Fall River, Mass., left the home she shared with her mother to go to her boyfriend's house in New Bedford. They had planned to go on a cruise that month, but on May 27th, Deborah's boyfriend called her mother, asking if she had seen Deborah. They had gotten into an argument as she stormed off. Deborah, known to frequent Weld Square, had battled a drug addiction for years. It's believed that she went to Weld Square following the argument and disappeared. Nancy Piva was last seen walking down the street, appearing to be crying. She and her boyfriend, Frank Pena, were in Whispers Pub, a notorious bar known for its drug trafficking operations and hangout for prostitutes. Nancy and Frankie got into a heated argument and Frankie forced her to leave the pub, never to be seen again. Two days later, Frankie reported Nancy missing. The police knew Frankie very well from previous run-ins, and the last time they had to deal with Frankie, he was with another woman, Rochelle Clifford, and she too had gone missing not long after. In July of 1988, Mary Rose Santos was dropped off at a bar called Quarter Deck Lounge by her husband. It's believed that Mary Rose left the bar to visit a friend who lived nearby and vanished. On July 2nd, 1988, the remains of a decomposing body was found by a woman who stopped to use the bathroom along Route 140 in Freetown. The partially naked body was that of Deborah Medeiros, the first of nine women to be found along I-195, Route 140, and Route 88 in the surrounding towns of Freeport and Dartsmouth. Two more had gone missing from New Bedford during this time, but have never been found. All of the women were known to have had a history with prostitution or drugs, and all of them had a connection to Whispers Pub, Quarter Deck Lounge, and Weld Square. Two men topped a list of potential suspects, but were either cleared or never convicted, 
none of the murders have been solved. So there were two men at the top of the suspect list. Their names were Ken Ponte and Anthony DeGrazia. Now, Ponte was a lawyer with a history of drugs who had uh, allegedly dated one of, one of the women and represented three other victims prior to their death. That's a lot of coincidences just falling in place there. Yeah, right off the bat. Yeah. First off, what lawyer do you know that does drugs with his prostitutes that he's representing? Uh, That's kind of wild. I mean, if you live in New Bedford, maybe. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, he was like a, a shady character. Um, he had a severe drug addiction of his own. And it's actually was was stated that the reason he got into law yeah. is because he got sick and tired of paying all of his attorneys. So he's like, I'll go, yeah. I was going to get my fucking own. He's a, a career criminal. Yeah. <laughs> a career scumbag. Yeah. I, I, I mean, to even become a lawyer is a pretty <laughs> scummy move. He's like, I, I can, but re- he had I can to, represent myself. Fuck I mean, it. To pass the bar is passing the bar. He was smart. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he did it. Yeah, poor, poor uh, you know, sex work is just a rough gig. It really is. So the reason, yeah, so he came under suspicion because he had a connection with them. And it's believed that he killed at least one of the women, Rochelle Clifford, because she was about to allegedly expose him for his drug, drug use. And uh, he was indicted by a grand jury. But all the charges were dropped because of a lack of evidence. And he actually ended up dying in 2010. Now, the second guy... Anthony DeGrazia, this one uh, shoots the censors. He was known by all the locals in Weld Square as Flatnose because his, I guess, a, a predated injury, like crushed his nose down. He's a stonemason. Yeah. yeah, probably. <laughs> right. And he also had like a, an alcohol dependency and a temper. So he would just like yeah, switch. If, if the prostitutes label you a nickname, that's yeah. not a good, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So he was arrested in 1989 for 18 counts of rape and assault against prostitutes. You know, due to his high bail, he was forced to stay in prison for a year. His lawyer uh, basically fought for a lower bail, so he was released a year later. And 18 counts, 18 and he counts. was released a year later. Yeah. Wow, crazy. So prior to trial, though, he died. He was murdered. Yeah. A, a, fan, a, a brother, a dad, somebody caught up to him. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Yeah. The initial autopsy report said homicide, but it was later changed to suicide. Yeah. Sure. I guess that change came from the district attorney. There's some sketchy stuff with the district attorney, too. I guess he like lost his election because of this, and I don't know. It's just like a whole shit show. But the reason that they're saying suicide is because the district attorney was probably hanging out with uh, Ken Bunty too. <laughs> they're probably smoking eight balls together. <laughs> yeah, the reason they're saying it's a suicide is because once Ponte was cleared, DeGrazia knew that all the attention was going to turn to him. Yeah. And he's like, you know, forget this. So that's the uh, New Bedford Highway murders. And next up we have for our Aussies, Mr. Cruel. Mr. Cruel. On the morning of August 22nd, 1987, a man masked with a balaclava broke into a family's home in Melbourne, Victoria's outskirt suburb of Lower Plenty. He forced his way into the house by removing a window pane in their living room. Once inside, he entered the parents' room clutching a knife in one hand and a gun in the other. He made both parents lay on their stomachs, bound their hands and feet, 
and locked them in a closet. Then he tied their seven-year-old son to a bed and sexually assaulted an 11-year-old daughter for nearly two hours. He made himself something to eat, cut the phone lines, and left. After the heinous attack, the police were called, and their investigation began. Police learned that the knot used to subdue the parents and son were sailor knots, used by those with nautical experience. It was over a year before Mr. Cruel struck again. Shortly after Christmas in 1988, the Wills family were fast asleep in their home, a couple of miles southeast of where the previous crime had taken place. Wearing dark blue overalls and a dark balaclava, Mr. Cruel broke into the Wills' home and held a gun to John Wills' head. As before, he clutched a knife in his other hand and told the parents to roll on their stomachs, then bound and gagged them. The intruder told the parents that he was only there for money, but then he methodically cut the phone lines and made his way into the bedroom where the four Wills girls were sleeping. Addressing the 10-year-old daughter by name, the man blindfolded and gagged her, then picked up a few items of her clothing and fled the house with her the early next morning. After freeing himself and noticing that the phone lines were cut, the father rushed next door to the neighbor's house to use their phone to call the police. However, Mr. Cruel was long gone, and so was his daughter. Eighteen hours later, just after midnight, and dressed in a green garbage bag, the ten-year-old girl was found standing on a street corner. She was reunited with her family and gave police some startling clues as to who her attacker could be. Because she was blindfolded throughout her assault, she was unable to give a full physical description of Mr. Cruel. But she did recall how shortly before letting her go, the suspect made sure to give her a bath, clip her finger and toenails, and brushed her teeth. Investigators quickly tied the incident to the one in Lower Plenty, and fear was beginning to take shape in the Melbourne suburbs. Mr. Cruel struck a third time on July 3, 1990, in the suburb of Canterbury, Victoria, which is just west of his second attack and south of his first attack. The parents, Brian and Rosemary, were attending a farewell party and left their two daughters home alone. Just before midnight, the two girls were woken. Standing before them, armed with his usual gun and knife, he instructed a 13-year-old to go into another room to get her school uniform while he tied up her 15-year-old sister. Mr. Cruel then took off with the 13-year-old in the family's rental car. About 20 minutes after the abduction, Brian and Rosemary returned home, where they found their 15-year-old daughter tied to her bed with a ransom message. A little over 50 hours later, their 13-year-old daughter was dropped off not far from her home. She was fully dressed, wrapped in a blanket, and still blindfolded. When she was confident that Mr. Cruel had driven away, she removed the blindfold and made her way to a nearby house. It was just after 2 in the morning when she phoned home. She was able to offer the investigators some details that were vital to the investigation. The attacker stood about 5 feet 8 inches tall, or about 172 centimeters, had a pot belly, and possibly had reddish-brown hair. Some details of her ordeal were more horrifying. She revealed that throughout her time in captivity, she was forced to lay down in a neck brace contraption fastened to the abductor's bed, restraining her while she was abused. 
On April 13, 1991, Mr. Cruel broke into a home in the affluent Templestowe district. That night, a 13-year-old was entrusted to watch over her two younger siblings. At roughly 8.40 that evening, the 13-year-old and one of her sisters headed to the family's kitchen to make some food when they were startled by Mr. Cruel in his balaclava in a green-gray tracksuit. I only want your money, Mr. Cruel stated as he forced the two younger siblings into a closet. He pushed the bed in front of the closet to lock the two youngest sisters in as he made his escape with the 13-year-old. Minutes later, the two frightened sisters managed to push the door open and immediately called their father at the family restaurant. Sadly, the 13-year-old would never be reunited with her family. Nearly one year after her abduction, on April 9, 1992, a man walking his dog in the close-by area of Thomastown came upon a fully decomposed skeleton. An autopsy revealed that the 13-year-old had been shot three times in the head, execution-style, probably not long after her abduction. Mr. Cruel remains one of Australia's most wanted criminals. So Mr. Cruel's original moniker was Mr. Cool to describe the, the way he committed his crimes. He was, they were well thought out, he was calm during the whole process, and each kidnapping was concise. Like, he knew exactly what he was going to do. Yep. Throw in little hints to throw off investigators, too. Amazing. Yeah. This guy is like was using a phone. Super smart. Yeah. He would use phones in the, in the houses to like make them think like he's talking to somebody else or whatever. If there was any unsolved story that could become a movie... Mr. Cruel is 100%. Like, oh, yeah. My, like, the, the, his, his mug shot or, like, the, the, his sketch yeah. from the victims, all that stuff. He looks terrifying. Oh, yeah. Literally. Ch- like, the dark over dark blue overalls and a ski mask, that sounds like, like Michael Myers is coming after you. Yeah, exactly. It's terrifying. Well, that's what I think when I was scrolling through all of these cases. That, that's one thing that, like, stood out to me. Like, I was like, dude, dude, you know, scrolling through, and all of a sudden I saw the freaking sketch, and I'm like, that is absolutely terrifying. Who is this? Holy shit. Yeah, it's, it seems like something out of a nightmare. Yeah. One of the things that, that stands out in all of this is that all of the victims, they lived within a 20-minute drive of each other. And there was a witness that had come forward stating that in 1988, a man was seen recording the home of one of the victims six weeks prior to their kidnapping. And that home had two electrical towers adjacent to its backyard. Okay. Why are the electrical towers important? Because using mapping technology, authorities believe that Mr. Cruel had worked or still works for the electrical industry because all four confirmed victims had either lived near or found near electrical substations. One of the things that people look for in like a serial killer, serial serial rapist, or patterns is patterns, and they are comfortable in areas that they're familiar with. Yeah, but then all of a sudden it just stopped. And the reason that I, people say, you know, usually when crimes stop, they either been arrested, they're dead, or they moved away. Now in this case, because of the last victim, she was killed. People are believing that maybe she she actually saw who he was or knew who he was. And he killed her and was like, oof, okay, that's maybe a step too far. Yeah. You know, I only like diddling little kids. I don't like killing them. Well, at, the, at this point, too, it was he's he was so good at yeah. evading mm-hmm. that, like, it probably was a, it could have been a wake-up call for him. Yeah, could have been. Where he was just 
Yeah, but I mean, there's there's a lot of other cases that are contributed to him prior to the last one. Uh, they're saying that maybe possibly up to 12 uh, similar cases are, are related to Mr. Cruel. One of the big things that stands out to me, too, is washing the bodies, mm-hmm. uh, clipping fingernails and toenails, brush and floss teeth. This guy knew exactly what he was doing. Right. Yeah, like when I first started reading this, I I thought of maybe he had something to do with law enforcement or he was like forensics or, or something. Like he was familiar with the process. But I don't know. Now the direction is towards the electrical industry. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Next up on our list is the Highway of Tears. That's such a bad name. It for is this a bad fucking- name. The Highway of Tears murders represent the work of possibly more than one serial killer, with many cases still unsolved. The name derives from a 725-kilometer stretch of Highway 16 between Prince George and Prince Rupert, British Columbia, in Canada, and the tears at the family's shed that have lost loved ones along this stretch. Highway 16 traverses remote areas of forest, snaking through logging towns and indigenous reservations. The region is plagued in places by poverty, which means many residents lack reliable transportation. Therefore, hitchhiking remains the only viable way to travel to work or seek medical treatment. The road itself is dark, without the lights and cameras that deter crimes in more populous areas. The area also boasts fertile soil, relatively easy to dig, as well as numerous carnivorous animals to carry away remains. From 1969 to the present, dozens of young women, most of them indigenous, have disappeared or been found murdered near Highway 16. Some people familiar with the case suggest that the total number of victims could be 50 or higher, and nearly all are unsolved. Three separate serial killers, Brian Arp, Edward Isaac, and Cody Legebikoff, have been charged with various murders in the area but investigators believe there may still be others at large. Investigation of the Highway of Tears homicides has been dogged by complaints that the cases were not given enough priority or thorough examination. The victims were often young, poor, and indigenous. Government files related to the case have been suspiciously purged in response to attempts to gain more information. In 2005, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, founded E-Pana, the name deriving from E for E-Division, and Pana, an Inuit goddess who cares for the souls before reincarnation. E-Pana focuses on the reinvestigation of the Highway 16 murders, although the investigation expanded to include similar cases not connected to the highways. The RCMP believes that 18 of the murders are directly related to the Highway of Tears cases, while Aboriginal organizations believe that the number could be closer to 40. The majority of the homicides directly related to the Highway of Tears remain unsolved, and detectives are still pursuing these open cases. So the task force, EPANA, has had some successes with investigating the Highway of Tears. You know, they're using DNA technology. They linked a 1974 homicide of 16-year-old Colleen McMillan Uh, to that of a deceased American serial killer, Bobby Jack Fowler. And Fowler is also suspected in two other killings. 
good start for the amount of murders that have happened on Highway of Tears. Now, the thing with Epana, though, that we touched on in the story is that they don't only do the murders that are quote unquote associated with Highway of Tears. They've included others yep. in the area. Whether this is actually a Highway of Tears, you know. This one's fascinating because I highly doubt this has been one or two people have killed on this. Like serial killers have been the primary killers on throughout this highway where I think this attracted multiple people. Oh, it's, you know, the legend it's starts a candy store. Yeah, yeah, the legend starts spreading. Then that, that guy who's always had that, you know, craving right. starts scoping it out, drives down it. Oh right. wow, this is this would be real easy. Yeah, this is pretty you know? yeah. I mean it's it's a stretch of highway there's no lights, there's no there's sporadic towns, you know. And what a horrible nickname for you know It is. It is it, it's reminiscent of another horrible era in our history but um the other one the, uh, there's another guy that they're kind of they were kind of looking at it's uh, in 2014 there was a serial rapist by the name of gary taylor handlin and he was charged with the murder of monica jack and 11 year old Catherine mary herbert police said that handlin was a previous suspect but they didn't have enough evidence so in december of 2014 they arrested him and it was attributed in part to advances in forensic science, but they didn't really release all of the details. Um, he was convicted in January of 2019 for first-degree murder of Monica Jack, but this case was predominantly based on his confession. Yeah, if he, he, if he didn't confess, they would have never... Right. I mean, they, they had some evidence, but not enough to get a conviction. Conviction. So they used his, uh, his confession. But like I said earlier despite these beliefs and connections and, and whatnot, there have been no charges or convictions regarding the original Highway of Tears victims. The OG. The OGs. Hopefully they come up with, with something to uh, you know give these families some, some closure and some peace. You would think that forensic scientists wouldn't be intrigued by this and so many murders just swept on the rug. And cold ca- how many cold cases is that? Like- yeah, this spans decades. Like I said, hopefully something comes out of it. But we'll go on to the next one. And this is kind of close to home. It's the Long Island Serial Killer. The Long Island Serial Killer, also known as Lisk, the Gilgo Beach Killer, and the Craigslist Killer, murdered between 10 and 16 people over a period of nearly 20 years. Although most remains were discovered in 2010 and 2011. Mostly all of the victims were known sex workers who used Craigslist for advertising. But the youngest purported victim was a toddler aged 16 to 24 months, who was believed to have been brought along with her mother and both were murdered. In some cases, the victims had been missing for many years before their remains were discovered, which has hampered efforts to solve the case. The killer also dismembered the bodies and disposed of the remains throughout various areas along the south shore of Long Island, New York. The first remains discovered have been become known as the Gilgo Four, whose torsos were all reportedly found within 500 feet of each other along a stretch near Gilgo Beach in December of 2010. Investigators believe that the killer is a white male familiar with the Long Island region, and they had easy access to burlap sacks, which were used to hold the remains of the victims. The press speculated that known serial killer Joel Rifkin who had murdered at least nine women across other areas of New York, might be responsible for these deaths, since he had lived in Long Island for a time. 
Rifkin has denied any involvement. In an effort to spur new leads, Suffolk County Police Commissioner Geraldine Hart released images of a belt found at one of the crime scenes. The belt features the letters HM or WH embossed in black leather and it was recovered near Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach. Investigators believe that the belt is connected to the perpetrator, not the victims, and they have asked anyone who might have information about the belt to come forward. The investigation into these murders is still ongoing. So in September of 2017, the prosecutor's office announced that John Bitrolf, uh, he was a suspect in the case. Now, he was a carpenter who had access to the type of sacks that were linked to the crimes. And he had recently been convicted of the murders of two other female sex workers in the 1990s. And both of them were dismembered, similar to the Lisk cases. But his attorney says he had nothing to do with it. It never really went further than... At, at this point, he's spending the rest of his life in jail. Right. He's He was convicted. He was sentenced to consec- two consecutive terms of 25 years to life. So consecutive, they go right after another. Yep. That's 50 years. Could he possibly get out? Who knows? But I don't think he will. But there's the possibility. Yeah, the parole board. Right. It's going to be like, yeah, it, yeah. You know, we, we reviewed your case. You, yeah. you stamped some license plates. Yep. You've just been great. You found God. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah, you're good. You're good. Enjoy your life. 2010, 2011, too. That's, you know, fairly recent. Well, 2010, 2011, that's when they were found. Like, they, th- this has been going on since the 90s. Like, when these women were found, they weren't found intact. They found torsos. They found arms. They found legs they found a head they found you know and this is like sporadic over the years like one woman they found her leg in the early 2000s late 90s and then found her torso in 2010 you know what i mean they might be onto something with with john right one of the more disturbing stories that i think that comes out of this is of the woman identified as peaches who was found in 2011 Now, she was given this name because of a distinct tattoo of a heart-shaped peach on her left breast. And as we stated in the story, there was also a toddler who was found. Now, DNA results have confirmed that both Peaches and the one they call Baby Doe, uh, the female toddler, uh, are in fact mother and daughter. Now, this is just like, I can't even like wrap my head around it because they described that Baby Doe was found with gold earrings and a gold necklace and... And I'm just, like, thinking of that day. Peaches gets her daughter ready, you know. Come on, honey. You know, we're going to go meet a friend. You, you, just, you just made it real. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's you, just you like, just made it put her earrings in, you know, she's wearing a necklace, get her dressed. You know, okay, come on, we're just going to go meet a friend real quick. And then they both end up dead. It's just, ugh, rips my freaking heart out. Yeah, you have to be a real psycho to stalk a woman and her child. Yeah. It's, ugh, I don't know. But... A little connection to us is that one of the women was actually from Norwich, Connecticut, where we're from. Yes. Um, she was discovered in 2010 and was one of the, what they call the Gilgo Four. And these were the first bodies that were discovered um, along the uh, area of, of Gilgo Beach. Uh, 25-year-old Maureen Brainerd Barnes, she was last heard from in July of 2007. She was a mother of two and had given up the sex industry for about seven months, but picked it up part-time, you know, to pay her bills after she received a eviction notice. Um, she worked at a Super, Super 8 motel in Manhattan, 
and she called a friend on July 9th of 2007 th- saying that she was meeting a client she had met on Craigslist. Ugh, back page. Yep. And all the Gilgo four, they were four, found within 500 feet of each other. You know, all buried. Definitely linked. Yeah. Who would have thought? Small world. Yeah. You know, she's from where? Studio Chloroform. Yeah. <laughs> oh, trademark man. pending, by the way. Yeah, trademark pending. So, yeah, that'll do it for Lisk. And we'll move on to a man known as Jack the Stripper. Not Jack the Ripper. Jack, Jack the, Stripper. the Stripper. I feel like it's it sounds like a uh, you know Thunder from Down Under guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll listen. We'll hear that one next. The Hammersmith Nude Murders were a series of six murders in West London, England in 1964 and 1965. Their bodies were found with clothing removed, sometimes stripped so bare that even their false teeth were taken. All the victims were sex workers. All were small of stature, and all showing no signs of struggle. The local press began calling the uncaught killer Jack the Stripper, in homage to Jack the Ripper 75 years earlier. The homage would end up serving as a foreshadow. Like Jack the Ripper, Jack the Stripper's case was never solved. There was hardly any evidence. Despite the victims being stripped, the investigators didn't see signs of rape or sexual assault at the murder scenes. There were patterns to how the women were killed. For example, the killer seemed to use the victim's own clothing to strangle them. Occasionally, a victim would be punched, but none of this evidence helped narrow their search. The investigation caught a small break when the fifth victim, 22-year-old Helen Bartholomew, was found with flecks of paint on her body. Forensic investigators determined that the pigment appeared to come from a spray paint gun used to fix dinged-up cars at auto body repair shops. Two subsequent victims had the same paint flecks on them, leading investigators to believe that the killer worked in auto repair. Another tip came in on the killer's vehicle. On July 14, 1964, at around 2.30 a.m., Two men painting a restaurant interior saw a suspicious figure in a gray van. After they called out to him, the man, startled, drove off. A few hours later, the body of Mary Fleming was found in a cul-de-sac, a ten-minute drive away. Police began scanning the roadways for gray vans, but the clue never led anywhere. Investigators once again found themselves at a dead end. With the killer most likely dead and no forensic evidence found at the scenes, it's likely that these murders will remain forever cold. So there was a man that was named Harold Jones who had killed two young girls at the age of 15, which sent him to prison. Uh, He never showed remorse for these murders, but he was released during World War II to be placed in the armed services. Cannon fodder. Yeah. There were some other details that made him a prime suspect. Uh, he was a auto body mechanic, which he had links to the industrial area where the bodies were found. Um, but ultimately, we'll never know because in 1971, he died. If you were transporting bodies around mm-hmm. in your van yep. as an auto mechanic, especially an auto body mechanic, yep. 100% there's paint, there's dust, yep. everything. Ah, that's a big clue right there. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
on top of it too is what was going on i mean i know we needed people in world war ii but to just <laughs> let a convicted killer just oh yeah, yeah let's just let him go like, yeah. that, that's the worst place to send a guy yeah. like that put him on the front well oh. at least he knows he's not afraid to kill yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's when it's all the downtime hanging out in right. little european cottages and stuff with yeah. other people around so yeah so he died of bone cancer in 1971 and there was never any uh dna collected from the scene so he does have children and whatever, but they they don't have anything to yeah. This is compared to this was way before DNA right anal- analyzed. They're oh, like, what's that stuff? Oh, <laughs> is that sperm? Ugh, wipe oh, it off. Oh. Get rid of it. That's Just gross. Yeah, the ha- where's the hazmat team? Yeah. <laughs> but there was another man whose name was Kenneth Archibald. Uh, he was 57. He confessed to the crimes, but ultimately recanted. And because there was no evidence linking him, they, he was never charged. Yeah, that just seems weird. It's yeah. like, a you know, he just wanted some glory. Well, that's similar to the guy with the John Bonet yeah. murder. You know, he was like this five foot six, 97 pound guy. And he's like, oh, I did it. No, you, you didn't fuck. Shut he up. Was, he was just obsessed with the case. Yeah. You know? He was, uh, he was, yeah, weird. He was like borderline <laughs> stalker. Yes. So. He probably would have did it if she was still right. alive. So that's uh, Jack the Stripper little homage to uh, Jack the Ripper. And next off, this has to be like the honorable mention to the name Mr. Cruel. And this one goes by the name of Charlie Chopoff. What a great serial killer name. If you were a serial killer, real quick, mm-hmm. what would your newspaper name be? What would, what would be my moniker? Yeah. Hmm. The Clitoris Cannibal. <laughs> I I thought you were going to be serious for a second. And I should have fucking known, dude. I should have I fucking known. <laughs> the Norwich Necrophiliac. The Norwich Necrophiliac. Oh, I like that one. You would dig up bodies. You would. Shut up. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> no, That's that. Oh, I like that one. The, the Clitoris Cannibal. <laughs> All right, here's Charlie Chopper. All right. March 9th, 1972, in Harlem, New York, on a rooftop at 222 East 121st Street, lay the body of eight-year-old Douglas Owens in a pool of blood. He'd been stabbed 38 times in the neck, chest, and back, and his shoes had been removed. The young boy's penis had been slashed and almost severed, still attached to the body by a flap of skin. It was a furious attack, and there was some evidence he may have been sexually assaulted. On April 20th, an unnamed 10-year-old boy was sodomized and gutted on a roof two miles away. His penis was hacked off and carried away. Amazingly, he survived the attack and eventually police found the genitals in a nearby park where a group of children were playing with them. The victim, who had been running errands at the time, described the man who had attacked him to police, telling them he was in his late 30s, either Hispanic or Italian, and had skin that was neither dark nor fair, but pockmarked. He was thin, may have walked with a limp, and had dark hair. Two features stood out from the description a mole on the left side of his face, and unusual black marks on the left side of his chin. The assailant had called himself Michael and lured the boy away with the promise of 50 cents if he followed him. Then on October 23rd, he would strike again, stabbing Wendell Hubbard to death on the roof of his own home 
at 2013 Fifth Avenue near 125th Street, just blocks away from where Owens had been slain. He was stabbed 17 times in the neck, chest, and abdomen. His penis was severed and carried away. The killer struck again on March 7, 1973. This time, the victim was 9-year-old Louis Ortiz, who had been on an errand to the corner store to buy milk and bread. Unlike the other victims, he was found in the basement stairwell of 200 West 106th Street, not on a rooftop. But there seemed to be little doubt that he was a victim of the killer, being killed just one block away from where the surviving victim was attacked. He was stabbed 38 times, and his penis, again, was missing. The murders and perceived police inactivity of the case led to a public protest by residents, with public meetings held and children making a video to warn others not to talk to strangers. Feelings ran high, and investigators eventually created a new 10-person homicide task force to deal with the slayings, with 50 detectives in total on the case. Local children gave the attacker a macabre moniker, Charlie Chopoff, and the press ran with it. After being seen loitering in the area, Luis Alberto Gonzalez was questioned at the 7th Precinct Station about the case, fitting the attacker's description. Police ascertained he had nothing to do with the killings, but the suspect's presence led to angry locals surrounding the station and demanding that the suspect be handed over to them. A subsequent murder on August 17th would show more features that were new from the killer. Eight-year-old Stephen Cropper was killed on a Lower East Side tenement rooftop, his body being discovered by a woman walking her dog. While the killing taking place on a roof was familiar, this time he wasn't stabbed and was instead slashed repeatedly with a razor. There was no damage to the genitals, yet his body had been posed in a sexually suggestive manner. Once again, his shoes had been removed. Cropper had last been seen by his mother an hour before he left their apartment to play, with the body being found at 5.30 p.m. At the time, witnesses in the area reported seeing a limping man running from the building where Cropper was located, the description tallying with earlier reports in the composite sketch. Yet despite this, police suspected the killing wasn't one of the Charlie Chopoff series, not only noting the very different nature of the attack, but that it happened in a completely different area of the city. The other killings had all taken place in the Harlem area. To get in, before we talk about the guy who we both think is the actual suspect, mm-hmm. and who is Charlie Chopoff, uh, one of the suspects was Luis Alberto Gonzalez, okay. who walked with a limp, and according to them, the survivors and stuff like that, that was one of the descriptions, descriptions of him. Uh, he was seen loitering in the area, around where one of the bodies was found. The press ran with the story and nicknamed him Charlie Chopoff, a suspect, and they actually went to the police station, the locals in that area, yeah. and demanded they be turned over to him. Ugh. So, like, that, that death by mob is probably one of the scariest things ever. Yeah. But Imagine if they actually got a hold of him and oh, he wasn't the guy. No. It's Freddy Krueger. Oh, yeah. It got so bad that they actually, you know, put the police put up barricades and they quickly stormed the the police station. These are actual... They actually stormed the police station and scaled the roof to try to get this Jesus guy. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yes. Wow. All right, so here's the guy that we both think that did it. So his name was Erno Soto, 
Okay, he was reported as a possible suspect two weeks after the first murder, but he was never questioned. A few years prior, uh, Soto's wife had left him, and when he attempted to reconcile with her, he found that she had a child with uh, African-American man, with Soto being Puerto Rican. You know, even though he presented himself as not being bothered by the fact, privately he was enraged, and his behavior towards African-American became extremely violent. Now, he was institutionalized on and off throughout the murder spree, you know, in, out, in, out, in, out. Now, on, on, in May of 1974, uh, Soto attempted to abduct a Puerto Rican boy, and the kid escaped his grasp. And he went running from his, you know, would-be kidnapper, and remembering the high, highly publicized murders, Soto was quickly surrounded by neighbors and detained until police arrived. Now, he was charged with kidnapping, and he was immediately put under suspicion of being Charlie Chopoff. He was questioned, and he eventually confessed to one of the murders, uh, saying it was God's mission to turn little boys into little girls. The crazy part about that is, is because he's nuts, it might have helped him that the police were like, ah, this guy's just crazy. You right. know what I mean? Look at him, he's been institution. But it very much well could have been him. Well, the reason I think it's him is because... You know, obviously he's too crazy to stand trial, so he'll probably never be charged with any of the other crimes. But after he was arrested and institutionalized, call it a coincidence or not, nothing mm, happened after that. Yeah. So, I don't know. Call it what you will. And at this point, uh, Charlie Chopoff wasn't gonna, planning on stopping. He wasn't slowing down at no. all up until no. that point. So, I feel like it'd be easier to have vic- boy, li- like little younger boy victims. You know, you can entice us with anything, and we'll just come hang out. Like, like look at <laughs> look at Gacy. Like, I, I would have been one of those victims. I would have been in his basement. You yeah. know what I mean? I like. Right. I hey, you want to come over and watch some porn? Me at fourteen? Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds that sounds yeah. cool. I got you some want, beers. You hey, wanna you want to you want a little tiki umbrella in, the, in your yeah. drink? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're just... just Try on these handcuffs. We're just... (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So... Fuck. We're just dumb. Yeah, we are idiots. (laughs) Yeah, we... Yeah, boys don't don't think things all the way through. So So that'll do it for this episode. And before we go, don't forget uh, to become a criminal on our Patreon. Visit patreon.com backslash criminal AF. There's five tiers, and you can donate as little as $2 a month to help the podcast. Now... Everyone will receive early release of all of our episodes. Uh, Ramirez and above will receive our blooper reels. Camper and above will receive Patreon-only monthly bonus episodes of True Crime Fast Facts. Uh, Bundy and above will receive a quarterly gift as well as an exclusive I'm a Criminal on Patreon t-shirt. Get yourself some exclusive merch. Yes, sir. Now, Zodiac, which is our new tier, um, they'll get everything from all the other tiers. And they will receive an executive producer credit for every single episode for the length of their membership, as well as a virtual guest spot on a future episode. Can't wait for that. Yeah. So much stuff, bro. So much stuff. Now, links to our Patreon, PayPal, socials, merchandise, and more are in the episode description. So that'll do it for this episode of Criminal AF. Signing off from Studio Chloroform. Keep your head on a swivel. Take care until next time. See ya.
show. Went to the club with my two friends. Uh. Got through the door with just two, two tents. A girl came up and got between us. She had three tits and a micro penis. A four inch clip, whatever you call it. What? I took out my ones because I'll be yeah, all for it. it. Strippers everywhere were about to fall out. It's like they got smacked with nuclear, nuclear fallout. fallout. I like freaky, leaky, and totally obscene. I get a full dose while I'm yelling Wolverine. Wolverine. I got two girls with one eye, three digits. It would be a perfect night if we only had a midget. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really oh, midget. okay. Well, you can call us brave. We could call us noble, noble for going to the only strip club at Chernobyl. But to be honest, I wiped my money back because I saw my dancer growing a nutsack. Ew. She told me not to worry, and it was only aesthetic. She told me it was exotic and that it was prosthetic. Her ass started to clap, and my Geiger counter sang. I was mesmerized by her nuts, so I ignored it as it rang. Hello? Chernobyl girl. Hello. Nah. You're my world. Turning me blue like uranium fuel. Turning me blue.